we start with those pop-up temporary patios that we saw during the pandemic. Uh, looks like they're going to be made permanent in a lot of places. Let's check in now with Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. And I'm ple- uh, pleased to welcome him back. Brad West, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Vancouver City Council voted yesterday in favor of a new summer patio program. This evolved out of these uh, temporary expedited patios that popped up during the pandemic. A lot of people loved them. Not everybody. Some of them thought they were taking up too much space, maybe taking up too many parking places, hazardous for cyclists. Not everyone was thrilled with these patios, but most people seemed to like them. Looks like Vancouver City Council going with a permanent program here, at least in the summer. And I know you guys are doing the same thing in Poco, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, a week ago, we announced that our temporary program was going to become permanent. We rolled it out back in May 2020, the first city in Metro Vancouver to do so. And the first to now say it's going to be permanent. Uh, the other thing we did, Mike, is we waived all of the fees that are associated with this because one of the things that's interesting is I know uh, in some places they say, okay, yeah, it's possible you can do it. Well, it's theoretically possible. Quite often it's completely cost prohibitive because the city wants to charge thousands of dollars in encroachment fees. And so we waived all of that in POCO. It's been very successful here. You know, just to address uh, the criticism that you uh, you mentioned, and I have yeah. heard that from some people. Look, you, you got to be common sense about this stuff. So, of course, you're going to make sure that pedestrians can still get by. Of course, you're going to make sure that it's accessible for people who uh, have accessibility challenges. You know, again, common sense. But you don't just say, oh, well, something horrible could happen with it, and therefore we won't do it. I okay, mean, that, this- that sort of attitude leads us to doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, but by and large, it's been a very popular program, and I'm really proud of our city for leading the way. Yeah, I think it's been popular not only with restaurant customers, but with the restaurants themselves who have been able to keep going in many cases because they've got this patio access and outdoor seating. And, you know, I've heard it called a lifeline for a lot of restaurants that struggled through the pandemic. Like, what have you heard from restaurants that have been able to secure these patios? Well, I know in Port Coquitlam, we've heard that it's made all the difference in the world. Remember, especially when we were in a period during the pandemic where we had uh, much more uh, severe restrictions uh, around indoor dining, um, you know, and being able to have seating outside uh, was a huge lifeline to these restaurants. And look, they've had the crap knocked out of them. Uh, they really have. And this is a, um, a modest thing that cities can do, but a real helpful thing, a really impactful thing to them. And I just think that, you know, all of us across Metro Vancouver and the entire province, I mean, this, in my opinion, should be uh, the, the norm rather than the exception. Uh, and, and like you said, it's what people want, too. People like being able to dine outside or have a beer or a glass of wine outside, uh, you know, when we get those spectacular summers that we have here on the West Coast. Okay, the Vancouver Planning Committee down there at Vancouver City Hall, the Vancouver City Planning Commission, had actually issued a report uh, raising a lot of concerns about these patios. They called it privatization of public space, uh, potential hazards for the homeless, cyclists 
Yeah, they raised a lot of red flags about it. The city council deciding to make it a permanent feature in the city in the summer. You, you know, you talked about some. Is that some of mixed messaging coming out of the city of Vancouver? Do you think, or how do you look yeah, at that? Well, I'm not quite sure. I have to admit to not being fully up to speed on what the planning commission is. Um, I understand it to be um, a sort of separate entity or an at arm's length entity from from council. Uh, it sounds like a, an, another layer of bureaucracy that's probably unnecessary. We don't have something like that here. Uh, but you do send out a mixed message to to restaurants, to businesses, and to people when you say, well, on the one hand, we're worried it's privatizing public space, which I think is just a load of nonsense and just a kind of a buzzword that they've thrown out there. Um, but also, you know, kudos to the council for at the end of the day saying, it, it's permanent. Um, you know, what, what I've said is in Port Coquitlam, our door is open. If there's a restaurant yeah. out there somewhere in Metro Vancouver that's not able to get one in the city they're currently in, uh, come contact us at Port Coquitlam. We'd love to find a space for Should, you and have you in our city. Have other cities been doing this in the region? There have been other cities. I know that Delta uh, has a very good program. I know uh, North Vancouver does as well. Um, there's probably others I'm, I'm missing. I, I, I believe that I have heard from the Surrey Board of Trade that uh, Surrey is one of those cities where, uh, although it is technically feasible, the costs around it are so prohibitive that they haven't had the uptake on it that they otherwise maybe uh, would have had. Um, so you got a bit of a patchwork throughout Metro Vancouver. Um, I think this is a great area where we could actually get uh, the region's 20-plus municipalities into a room and, and come out with something that's uniform and standard. So whether you're a business owner in Port Coquitlam, Surrey, Delta, Vancouver, Burnaby, you understand that there's a bit of a level playing field. You know what the rules are, and, and you can uh, take advantage of this. Because, again, good for business, good for the okay. community. People love it. It's called a win-win. Okay, Mayor West, thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Mike. All right, Brad West there, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. He All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the pandemic labor crunch now. Employers out there searching high and low for anyone willing to work. And one of the hardest hit sectors in B.C., the restaurants, they are pleading for staff right now. One of their biggest challenges, fewer young people willing to take a restaurant job yeah, a little bit surprising you know for a lot of young people working in a restaurant was their very first job that was my first job that i ever had was working at a pizza parlor i worked as a dishwasher oh man did i sweat it out of that job is steam filled dishwashing room uh, minimum wage but heck i was happy to be making a few bucks check out this stat though now fewer younger people uh, willing to go into uh, these first jobs. There was one study which came out that the workforce out there, the labor market, has got essentially 100,000 fewer teenagers in the job market compared to 2008. That is going in the wrong direction. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ian Tostenson, CEO of the BC Restaurant Association. And it's always great to have him here. Ian, thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks, Mike. And that dishwashing job served you well, buddy. Look at you now. <laughs> oh, did you ever? Now, you're the head of the Restaurant Association. Did you ever actually work in a restaurant? 
Yourself? You know what? We were a supplier when I was in the wine business for many oh, years. Yeah. We we supplied restaurants, and uh, my wife's been in restaurants. So, yeah, it's been around in my blood. I have never directly worked in a restaurant, but I feel like I have. But well, I, uh, I, I, I remember say- that, that first job that I had, man, it was like I used to work till 2, 3 in the morning, washing dishes, super busy pizza place. And back in those days, Ian, they did not do the shared tip thing with yeah. the back of the house. I mean, this was a long this is a long time ago when I was a kid. So I was making minimum wage and there were maybe a couple of waiters, the real nice ones, would come back into yeah. the dish room and, and give us a buck, you know, <laughs> to give us a little share the share the tip. But that's all changed, right? Like if you're a dishwasher in a restaurant now, you get a share of the tips typically. Right. Yeah, so this yeah. so a server will probably take, you know, about five or six will pay five or six percent of their gross sales and do a pool and then uh that pool gets distributed uh to both that server and also to um the the, the uh people in the back, which is great. So right. that adds, you know, two or three or four dollars an hour. So uh, we don't really have a you know, a wage issue. I mean you're right, there's you know Put it in context here, Mike. Um there's six hundred and we did a, a study back in twenty eighteen, it's going crazy what's happened because of the pandemic, but we had 600, we have 640,000 workers retiring in 10 years in BC, and we're only going to replace 430. So we have a natural wage um, disparity before the pandemic. Now the pandemic is, is we're seeing of that 100,000, uh, you know, youth, uh, a lot of them are not taking first-time jobs. They're, they're going to school. They, they're not going back to restaurants for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, one reason is that how consistent have we been? Not very. And there's safety concerns, health concerns. So that's one of our biggest problems is trying to convince people to come back. And there's thinking probably, well, you know, can you provide me with a secure income? And I think because of the VAX card now, certainly we can say that. But we're going to have to be really innovative in our recruitment, in our retention, and really trying to become employers of choice because it is, and I'm not just you know trying to sell it here. They're great jobs, and they're yeah. great skill. Uh, they, they teach great skills, and they're very flexible. And the money is good, especially especially if you're doing tips. So you're going to get minimum wage plus anywhere from an extra four, five, six, ten, maybe fifteen dollars an hour, depending on busy places. So, but we just got to start to sell that now. And I think the first thing is that we're open and we're going to stay open. And there's some stability there. Okay, I thought that was a really astonishing stat that we saw reported this week, taking a look at the labor market for teenagers. So teenagers going out, getting that first job, compare the labor market in 2008 to today. And there's basically 100,000 fewer teenagers in that labor market in Canada. Like, man, that is a lot. Why? Why do you think that those teenager, fewer teenagers, are willing to take that job? Well, I think it's, um, and, and as I said, I think it was because in the last eighteen months, in particular, the uh, you know what, uh, going to work in a restaurant. That is, I was reading in, uh, someone from a uh, a worker, and they said I, w- I worked for two months, and I was closed for two months, and then I had my hours reduced for a couple of months, and then it closed for a couple of months. So people moved on, and they went to tech. They went. They took serve and went and got trained. And I think, frankly, for teenagers, it's just a little bit unsteady. And I think for teenagers, probably concerned about boys are there health issues working in those types of jobs. Yeah. And I'm in my family. Uh, that probably the family's probably saying, you know what, 
you know what, Mike, just kind of cool it. You don't have to do that right now. So I think there's a little bit of reluctance. It should come back, but, you know, you're right. It's 100,000 people. The industry was short pre-pandemic in Canada, 68, around 68,000 people. Now it's 130,000 people. Wow. And in British Columbia, um, front of the house, so the, the people work at the front and the back of the house are cooks and chefs, we're about 40,000 people short in B.C., and so we're seeing reduced hours. Um, this is a closing for a couple of days so they can keep the pressure off of their, their staff that they do have right now. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And when you take a look at those jobs and going wanting right now, do you think that a lot of people point the finger at the CERB, right? And, and they'll say like, oh, this is why kids or young people don't want to go work at a restaurant or anywhere else. They'd rather stay home, pocket that 2000 bucks a month when the CERB program was in place. Now, the CERB is no longer there. Now we have the Canada uh, Recovery Benefit, which is less money. But do you think that in any way uh, reduced that labor market? Like, there are people who are ready, willing, and possibly able to work, but why should they if they're getting money from the government? Yeah, and, I th- and I, what I'm seeing is that a lot of people took that money and uh, and went and, and retrained themselves, and that didn't help us at all. So there's certainly some that said, you know what, I'm taking the time off. There's some people that said, I'm going to go retrain because I can't trust uh, an industry that keeps closing. And that's those would be really tough uh, people to get back, obviously. So it did play a, uh, it played a, a, a negative and also a positive. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful to see people moving on, getting more education, and finding careers. But and so that certainly the server effect it did that. There's no question. Right. Okay. There's also, of course, the argument, though, of people who will turn the point the finger back at the restaurant industry and say, look, I mean, this is a supply and demand labor market. If you guys want people, you should pay more. You should offer better benefits. Yeah. Is, I, and what I, do you I, say I to that? that? Yeah, I think we have to become now clearly get serious about becoming employers of choice, looking for making our industry over the long term, making them careers looking uh, for benefits. We're starting to see now, you know, more restaurants contacting us about, can I get a basic benefit program for my staff? And, uh, and looking for uh, bonuses to hire, bonuses to retain, uh, you know, b- referral bonuses to hire. So it, it, this is going to force change. And, and, you know, and prices will go up. And I think, the, the, I think the, the studies that we read is that the consumers will pay uh, more, a bit more, to make sure that we're providing stable employment for the people in our industry. So uh, it's going to take us a while to get there right now because the industry is pretty financially spent now and the resources are, are not back to where we can start to do those things. But we got to start you, moving that direction. Do you think, though, that maybe there's a general misconception out there that maybe people think the, the jobs in a restaurant don't pay as much as they, as they do? Like, how much can yeah. you typically make with tips? Well, you're fifteen twenty-five an hour minimum wage. So you know, you just look at the other comparable industries like retail or whatever. But you know, generally you're going to see. Um, you know, we will see in a busy restaurant a server will make two to three hundred dollars a night in tips. Um, that's not always the case, but certainly even in a medium-sized cafe, you're probably going to make you know another five or six or seven dollars an hour in tips as a server. So you're now in, in the in the low twenties. And um, it's not bad. And then you're sharing, as you said at the beginning, you're sharing some of that around the restaurant. So the guys in the kitchen are being lifted. But supply and demand, the wages have gone up. So kitchen wages now are probably approaching anywhere from 18 to $21 an hour. Uh, so they're not, 
there's not too many um, um, minimum wage jobs, if you will, probably more in the servers, but in the kitchen staff, supply and demand have pushed those wages up. So I, I would argue that our wages are pretty fair. And when you add in some other incentives, uh, it's, it's, a pre- it's pretty good and it's flexible. Speaking to Ian Tostenson, BC Restaurant Association. Ian, in the earlier segment, we talked about those pop-up patios now being made a permanent feature in Vancouver, at least in the summertime. We've seen other municipalities around Metro Vancouver also bringing in those patios for restaurants during the pandemic and saying, hey, we like this. We want to keep them going here, even when the pandemic is over, hopefully at some point. What do you think about those patios? Has that been a good thing for restaurants? I'm sure you would think it is. Yeah, perfectly aligned with what's going on in the, in the public's expectation. And I think it proved, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, in, in Port Coquitlam and Vancouver that we can move, governments can move quite quickly to respond. Um, you know, Vancouver moved quickly in terms of, you know, putting these patios in in the first place. And now they see the benefit. We're, we're trained now to want to be outside because of this pandemic. And then we, we got outside and we went, this is pretty good. And innovation is awesome. I mean, you, you know, sidewalks and parking spaces and back alleys. So I, I, I hats off to the uh, the Vancouver City Council and government for being so flexible and innovative because in the past it wasn't that way. Be like, well, Mike, in a couple months before we review your patio, we'll see. Now it's it's happening very quickly, and it's so it's in it's completely in line with trend that the that the consumer expects. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the show. Here we go now with that brand new international security agreement here designed in part to monitor and put pressure on China and Canada's allies banding together here. The United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, part of this new tripartite security agreement. Wait a minute. How come Canada is not in there? Canada not part of this uh, new deal. Justin Trudeau in the recent uh, election campaign took a lot of heat over that from his political opponents. How come Canada was not part of this agreement? Have a listen to this here. This is U.S. President Joe Biden making the announcement. Our nations and our brave fighting forces have stood shoulder to shoulder for literally more than 100 years. Through the trench fighting in World War I, the island hopping in World War II during the frigid winters in Korea, and the scorching heat of the Persian Gulf. The United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom have long been faithful and capable partners, and we're even closer today. Today, we're taking another historic step to deepen and formalize cooperation among all three of our nations. Okay, U.S. President Joe Biden there announcing this new agreement, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia, and Canada conspicuously not part of that. Trudeau taking some heat over this in the recent election campaign. Let's discuss now with my guest, and what a great guest I've got for you, Phil Gursky. Phil is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a former analyst at CSIS. He's a specialist in terrorism and intelligence practice. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Phil, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's always a pleasure. Hey, Phil, uh, how long did you work at CSIS? I was at CSIS for 15 years, and prior to that, I was at CSE, Communication Security Establishment, Signals Intelligence, for 17 and a half. So 32 and a half all in, Mike. Um, and I know the Five Eyes community very well, and I know Alliances really well, too. Okay, it's very cool that you worked at CSIS for that long. So you weren't like a, a, a double zero secret agent, though, right? Like you weren't, uh, you weren't driving around in like submarine cars and flying jetpacks and stuff around, though, right? 
I, I wish, Mike. You know, when I watched James Bond films, I thought, man, I missed out on something. I, I was just an analyst throughout my career. I'm a multilingual analyst at CSE and a terrorism analyst at CSIS. But, uh, yeah, I, I hate to tell you this, but the James Bond films are a little bit kind of ex- exaggerated what we need to do with thesis for a living. Okay. Well, still, I think it's a fascinating perspective you bring here as a, as a veteran in, in CSIS now and now an analyst. So, Phil, when we hear about uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, some of our closest allies here getting together with this new security agreement, and you heard Joe Biden there talk about the history these three countries have, I mean, it's kind of understandable. I guess some people in Canada are feeling kind of left out. But your thoughts? It's a bit of a mixed bag, Mike. So on the negative side, you're right. Uh, so I mentioned the five eyes earlier. This is the Canada, United States, United Kingdom, New Zealand, and Australia. It is, the, it is the gold star club of intelligence sharing, and it's something you, you learn very quickly when you join the intelligence community. It's been around since the better part of the Second World War, and it is a sharing arrangement amongst those five partners that is unparalleled in human history, and we've always been at the forefront of that. So I, I think when we have this new announcement about Australia, United Kingdom, and U.S. forming a kind of a, I don't know, a, a hiving off a little bit, it, it kind of rankles in terms of Canada. On the other hand... Um, this is still a very strong alliance. And I want to you know, tell your listeners, and I learned this when I worked at CSIS, you know, we have partners around the world. Um, so CSIS has an ability under what's called Section 17 of the CSIS Act to share intelligence with law enforcement intelligence on any country on the planet. And I was around the world when I was at CSIS dealing with, with partners on counterterrorism. So let's not make a mountain out of a molehill in this one. But the fact that we weren't included, I think, is an indication that maybe we're not pulling our weight as we should be on international intelligence. Okay, there is a lot of criticism of Trudeau for this announcement during the recent election campaign. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole saying that this shows Canada has become irrelevant in the intelligence community internationally under under Trudeau. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Also, Jagmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, also criticizing Canada's absence from this new pact here. Su- suggesting that Trudeau had dropped the ball, and I, I thought I thought Singh in particular made a point saying that if Canada had become part of this new uh, group, it could have helped put pressure on China to free the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, and currently jailed in China. Do you think that's a legit criticism? I, I really don't, Mike. I'm sorry. As much as I want the two Michaels home, as much as all other Canadians do, the yeah. Chinese aren't aren't going to bow down to this. But on the first point. You know, does it make a difference? Well, I hate to tell you, um, it's not just the Trudeau government. It was the Harper government and the Mulroney government and the Krejcian government. And even the first Trudeau government that I worked under, uh, governments in Canada don't really respect intelligence very much. We don't have the intelligence culture that the Brits and the Americans, and I would argue the Australians do. You know, this new alliance, if you want it, or sub-alliance, if you want to call it, is to put pressure on China. Do you know how many times, Mike, we at CSIS told the government about Chinese interference, Canadian affairs, and we're, we're told to go pound sand? The people didn't care. The government didn't care that Chinese is sending agents here. There's even an allegation in today's National Post. A guy that ran out in your, your neck of the woods in, in yeah. British Columbia who claims the Chinese agents influenced the vote in terms of you know, his position on China. Right. I think it might be an indication that maybe our allies are getting a little sick and tired at Canada not taking the Chinese threat as seriously as they should. But this is a, a generational issue with, with, with uh, government officials in Canada. I wish I would say it differently, but as I said, we don't have officials that really use intelligence and, and task it the way they should, like our allies do. 
Okay, speaking to Phil Gursky, Phil is a, a former analyst at CSIS. Let me play another clip here for you, Phil, from U.S. President Joe Biden uh, when he announced this new security arrangement between the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia, Canada conspicuously left out here. Here's uh, Biden, and then I'll get your thoughts. This is about investing in our greatest source of strength, our alliances, and updating them to better meet the threats of today and tomorrow. It's about connecting America's existing allies and partners in new ways and amplifying our ability to collaborate, recognizing there is no regional divide separating the interests of our Atlantic and Pacific partners. Okay, well, Canada, I think, would certainly fit the description of a key <laughs> Pacific and Atlantic partner of the United States. I mean, is there something about this new security pact between these three countries, Phil, that it makes it understandable that Canada is not part of it. Like, are they looking? Are they looking at security arrangements in more like the South Pacific or something? It would be more that would be more central to Australia's interests. Is that why we're not I mean, in it? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Mike. I think that Australia is part of this because of their geographical position. And now, look at when I used to work with CSIS and we dealt with it. What I dealt with what's called the Australian Security Intelligence Organization or ASIO. We used to talk to them a lot about you know terrorism movements in Southeast Asia because they have the specialization. They're there. They have the languages, they have, they have the people to work that kind of stuff. So for the Americans and the Brits to, work, to reach out to Australia, they are most directly affected by Chinese territorial ambitions in Southeast Asia. So you, you probably heard of what's yeah. called the Nine-Dash Line. This is this fake map that China has that says the South China Sea belongs to them, even though it, right. it incurs into Philippine territorial waters, Indonesia, Malaysia, etc. So Australia is a natural partner in this sense. I think Canada has a lot of contributions to make. But and I don't know why we were excluded. Like I said, I've been retired for six and a half years now. I don't have that kind of insider view anymore. But you know, I, I want this is speculation. But if our partners see the Canadian government ignoring the threat that China poses internally here in Canada, they yeah. might have some misgivings about what we can, well, you know, how, how our government feels about this this threat and what our contribution can be. I think we have a contribution to make. But maybe the the, th- the, the thinking is, hmm. We're not sure where Canada stands on a lot of this these days, so maybe we'll just keep them out of this particular sub-alliance, as I call it. Okay, well, you, as you mentioned earlier, Canada is still part of the Five Eyes intelligence community of Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States, and also New Zealand, and Canada, the Five Eyes. So that is still going, right? And, and you were very... Uh, you were praising that alliance there earlier in the show. Yeah. What do you think is... Um, like, what is the current status of the five eyes right now? And is it working well? And is Canada contributing to it? And is Canada getting a lot out of it? We've always gotten much more than we've, we've, we've put in. And that's simply a resource issue, Mike. You know, when I used to go down to the National Security Agency, or NSA, which is the CSE equivalent uh, here in Canada, you know, I'd, I'd go down to, and I'd have meetings, and there'd be like it'd be 80 people for every one of Phil Gursky. I mean, they're just, they're so huge. And, 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 you know, the Americans always have the numbers. Even the Brits have larger numbers than we do. I, I think that Canada certainly had played to its strengths, especially during the Cold War. We, we played an incredibly important role in monitoring Soviet movements over the North Pole uh, because of our geographic position. Are we doing enough? We never, we're never doing enough. And as I said, I, I think this lack of a mature intelligence culture means we haven't made the investments in CSIS and CSE. We got a ton of resources after 9-11 for obvious reasons. Have they been clawed back? I don't know the answer to that question. But um, I, I think if we want to continue to be part of the alliance, which is, like I said, is a really good alliance, we're going to have to pick up our socks a little bit, and governments have to pay more attention to what our intelligence agencies can do and make sure that they are resourced and financed appropriately.
Well, my guest is Phil Gursky. He's a former analyst at CSIS. Uh, lots of calls for him. Let's get right at it here. Paul and Delta, hi. Good morning. How are you, Mike? I'm good, Paul. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. I just want to say the fact that the, that the Chinese people and the Chinese agenda is now becoming more aggressive in interfering in elections and democracy, uh, not only in Canada, but worldwide. And we, and I know people here in Canada who have Chinese connections to the Communist Party. So they listen to the propaganda and they basically are brainwashed. So, for example, that Chinese uh, uh, MP who lost his seat in Richmond, uh, B.C., yeah. uh, was a target. And the reason he was a target of the uh, Chinese uh, community of propaganda or agents is because he voted against the Uringa Muslims uh, genocide. So we have yeah. people in this country here in Richmond that I know who are who, who believe in that, who are part of the Chinese communism agenda and regime, and they are infiltrating, trying to infiltrate and destroy okay. elections in just about every country. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Uh, talking about uh, former conservative MP Kenny Chu, who was uh, defeated in the election this week, and he says, yeah, there was Chinese interference in his campaign. Phil Gursky, your thoughts? I think, you know, your caller hit the nail on the head. They're very, very aggressive, and they really are pissed with us in Canada because, you know, we're supporting this notion that Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province are being held in concentration camps. The Chinese call them education centers, whatever. And I think that, you know, the, the Chinese have been very much on the offensive around the world, and they've got a sense of arrogance and confidence right now that they can do whatever they want. And, you know, they're going to push back against nations like Canada, where we have people here who want to, you know, call Chinese aggression for what it is and call their human rights violations for what they are. Are we surprised there's interference? Not, 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 not at least. And are there Canadians who are probably listening to this stuff? Absolutely. That's why we have thesis to investigate this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it is happening, Mike. Yeah, you know, I think it's clearly happening. Daryl in Coquitlam, hi. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I, I just sure. want to ask your guest about another security establishment in Canada called the Communications Security Establishment based in Ottawa. And I think they just got a brand-new billion-dollar building a few years ago. Very secretive organization. What do they do? Phil. <laughs> well, I worked there for 17 and a half years, from 83 <laughs> to 2001, before I went to CSIS, so I know exactly what they do. Um, they, basically, the, the mandate of, of CSE is twofold. Uh, one is foreign intelligence, so it collects signals about the intentions capabilities of foreign states to help our foreign policy. And the second one, which is increasingly important, is the Cyber Command. So they are Canada's Cyber Command to try to prevent nefarious actors from infiltrating our computer system. So, yeah, it's a very secretive organization, um, but it's a great place to work if I can encourage your listeners to apply to it. And uh, a lot of neat stuff goes on there, most of which I can't talk about, Mike. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there's stuff you can't talk about there. Mike in Surrey. Hey, Mike. Hey, uh, Mike. Uh, good morning. Uh, question for your, for your guest. Uh, but before I do, I just want to say I worked in Richmond for 30 years and had a building and a business there. And I tell you, in Richmond, they're their own little world. The Chinese have their own little world going there. So I think if we think that they're uh, even Canadian, I think we're half half crazy. But anyway, my other point, though, was this wow. issue of the uh, people in uh, Winnipeg. Yeah. You know, we had two scientists that were working so hard uh, with the uh, uh, the two Chinese people working in, in uh, the uh, establishment, the epidemiology establishment in Winnipeg, who were fired, and then, of course, they found out that they were working hand-in-hand -hand with a, a general out of uh, okay, what's your question? China just recently. So what's my your question, question was really, what, uh, you know, would that not cause the uh, government to uh, maybe, or the U.S. government and other governments say, 
maybe we can't trust the uh, Canadian uh, security establishment with this kind of uh, information. Maybe they're uh, there's maybe they're uh, not as strong as they once Thanks, were. thank you, thank you for the call, Phil Gursky. Yeah, I, I think he makes a good point, and I don't know what happened in the case because I don't have inside information anymore. But it does look bad when we have you know this happening and. As far as I know, Mike, maybe CSIS warned the government about this. Maybe there was an investigation on that. And for whatever reason, it wasn't taken seriously. It was put aside. I don't know. I don't, I don't have those answers. But the bottom line is when this is made public, as your guest said, it causes some of our allies to think, hmm, maybe Canada's not pulling its weight when it comes to foreign interference, which is part of the CSIS Act. Section 2, 2B of the CSIS Act says we have to investigate foreign interference in Canadian affairs. We are doing that. What the government does with our intelligence, that's a completely different issue, unfortunately. Let's talk about the B.C. government now cutting the budget for naloxone kits for B.C. police departments. Naloxone, of course, is the life-saving drug that can reverse the effects of a potentially deadly opioid overdose. And this drug is credited with saving thousands of lives all around the world. Here in British Columbia, uh, emergency use of naloxone credited with saving hundreds of lives in our own province alone. BC police departments have had access to these naloxone kits for the last four years. Police were received specialized training on how to recognize a drug overdose and administer naloxone. The province even considered the opioid crisis such a dire emergency that civilian members of police departments were also trained to use naloxone. And you can understand why when you take a look at the number of overdose deaths we continue to see in the province, more than a thousand, a thousand lives lost to these illicit drug overdoses in BC just this year alone. Why would the government cut the funding for these naloxone kits for BC police departments? Police officers are speaking out about this now. In the greater Victoria area, I got three municipal police forces uh, criticizing this move by the government now. The Victoria Police Department says that this, these naloxone kits have saved over 100 lives in Victoria over the last few years. And they are now allocating, dipping into their own budget to cover the purchase of more of these drugs now that the province has cut the funding. The police chief in Oak Bay in uh, suburban Victoria uh, tweeting yesterday that he was speechless and shocked that the budget for naloxone has been cut by the province. Let's discuss now with my guest, Trevor Halford, BC Liberal MLA. He's the official opposition critic for mental health and addictions, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Trevor, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, what do you think of this situation? Uh... Mike, I'm, I'm, honestly, I'm at a bit of a loss. I, 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 I don't understand it. And uh, I'm not just saying that. It, it, it makes absolutely no sense to me um, at this time when we are seeing the amount of lives lost. You know, between January and June, we've lost over 1,000 lives to, to the drug overdose. Um, we need every tool at our disposal. Um, this is something that has been working for police uh, for a number of years, it saved lives. We know that. That's not my words. Those are those are the words of the police officers, the, the men and women on the front lines. This makes absolutely no sense to me, and this government needs to fix it, and they need to fix it today. Yeah, this uh, there is a statement from the government on this, and they say that naloxone will continue to be supplied to harm reduction sites, pharmacies, 
correction facilities, paramedics, which just makes sense, and other people who are likely to experience an overdose, people working with frontline homeless, for example. Mm. I I don't yeah. I, I don't see like why no, would you no. cut the funding for police? Now they do no. say in this statement that they will work with police to ensure they have access after this after this funding is cut. Yeah, I mean, that, does that does that reass- does that reassure you? Absolutely not. No, I think that 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 is absolutely ridiculous, and it's an embarrassing answer. At the end of the day, the police officers are frontline, and they are working with people on the streets every day. Uh, every hour of the day, every minute, in every community across this province. This is absolutely unacceptable. This is something that has been working. Officers have been trained on, um, and they've been using it successfully, and it has saved lives. This decision will likely cost lives, and that is absolutely unacceptable. And this government needs to take a sober look in the mirror and realize what they're doing, and they need to fix it, and they need to fix it now. Okay, is this like a, a bottom line money issue? Maybe the province is looking at here because, as, as I understand it, these naloxone uh, doses can be expensive. I think I read somewhere it's like sixty bucks a a shot for naloxone, which is a lot. Yeah, well, I would I would say uh, you know the every life that we we lose is worth a lot more than sixty bucks a shot. Um, they are they are people, they are brothers, they are sisters, they are fathers, and they are mothers. And at the end of the day, they need our support and they need the support of everybody around them. That includes police officers who have been doing this. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, to me, budgetary doesn't make any sense. This is not something that is, in the, I would imagine, would be in the high millions of dollars. Even if it was, uh, it's been working. It's been working effectively. When this government yeah. talks about doing the right thing and helping people, um, it's very quick to do a news conference about an app that they developed. Uh, this is something that was saving people in real time, and this is absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, they've been doing this for years. Police officers have had access to these naloxone kits for the last four years. The province had been paying for it. Uh, police yep. officers had received this specialized training. And like you say, it's it was working. Like Police departments across the province are saying, like, yeah, we're, we're saving people's lives by using these kits, and we're well, grateful to uh, have them. They want to have this stuff. Yeah, and, and we should commend them for that. And, and not only that, you know, now we have situations, and I, I, I heard you reference it just before I came on, where we now have, like, the, VP, the Victoria Police Department is now dipping into their own budget to, to cover the, you know, the shortfall. So what does that mean? What is that going to come at the cost of? Is it going to be less officers on the street in Victoria? Is it other resources that are going to be, you know, at the end of the day, we are asking a lot of our men and women on the front lines for police, paramedics, firefighters as well. We need to give them everything possible to fight this pandemic and this is completely a step backwards and it makes absolutely no sense to me and this government can do the right thing they can fix it today okay we'll see if they do that i have a feeling they might they might walk this back because it just it does seem like a very wrong-headed decision to me speaking to trevor halford bc liberal mla he's the official opposition critic for mental health and addictions these are such massive challenging issues that we see on the streets of our cities uh, we see the the cost of addiction, the cost of people with untreated mental health issues on the streets. Mm-hmm. You're the official opposition critic for this. I mean, this is a massive, massive challenge, I think, to any government, no matter what party you're in. But Absolutely. W- what are your thoughts on the current state of the situation we have? We see a lot more turmoil and crime on the streets and people who, who obviously on the streets who need help. And what should be the government's top priority here in addressing it? Well, one is, is supporting our, our frontline workers. 
And uh, what we're talking about is, is not doing that. And that to me is a, is a very easy fix. There is, it is never the wrong time to do the right thing. And I, I would hope that, you know, this is, and this is one of the issues that this government has and they need to figure it out is that they have a ministry of mental health and addictions um, that is not structured as a ministry. You also have uh, the public safety, uh, you know, the ministry of public safety. Um, you also have a, a ministry that deals with local governments. My, my, question uh is going to be are you guys talking to each other because it clearly um i would think that you know somebody would take the position that this is not the right thing to do so uh you know what is happening in that cabinet table we've seen situations before where um, ministers have failed to communicate and that does happen but it cannot happen at the cost of people's lives do you last question for you do you think there's any kind of i don't know almost inherent bias against police departments in any way in this government i mean we see these campaigns in BC to defund mm-hmm. the police. We see criticism of police response to people who are homeless and in crisis on the streets. And people say, well, we should have social workers responding to wellness checks and mental health crises, drug overdoses, and not the cops, which I understand. But I mean, I don't think that's any, you know, people are calling for police reform, but that's no excuse to take these vital tools out of the hands of police officers or at least stop paying for them. No, and to the credit of of uh, this government, the opposition and the third party. We are we're all actually doing that with the uh with with the police act committee which which I'm fortunate enough to sit on. So we're doing that right now. We're we're having some great conversations and, and great presenters and, and we're working through some of those really, really tough um you know, tough problems that are that are facing law enforcement and are also facing people in the community, people with, with mental health issues and and addiction issues and, and, and other things. And that is something that is very important work. What we're talking about today does not help anybody. And, and more importantly, it does not help the people that, that are passing away and dying of drug overdoses. And the police are the first ones to stick up their hand and say, this is absolutely wrong. And at the end of the day, um, I'm standing with them. And I know many other British Columbians will do the same thing and, and say, no, this is absolutely unacceptable. And this government needs to step up. And this premier needs to do something and tell his ministers to get that funding back in and give these officers the support they need that is saving lives on the streets. Okay, we'll see if they do that. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Thank you for having me. Because we continue talking about the B.C. government here cutting funding for naloxone kits for B.C. police departments, police departments in the province unhappy with that. Uh, These are expensive kits, and they say they'd be forced to dip into their own budgets here to pay for these going forward if they continue to use them. Uh, Police officers in British Columbia have had access to these naloxone kits for several years. They received specialized training. The province paid for these kits. And this drug uh, can reverse the effects of a potentially deadly opioid overdose. Police departments say naloxone has saved hundreds of lives. It is a bad decision here by the province here to cut funding for this. They're saying that we will work with police departments to somehow continue their access to naloxone, but unclear. Bad decision, in my opinion. I'd like to see the government walk this one back. Let's talk with Doug Spencer now, retired police officer with the Vancouver Police Department. And he's a friend of the show here. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Doug. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think of this issue? Like, let's talk about naloxone with police officers. I mean, this is a a tool that wasn't available for many years for police officers, but now they have it. Um, How important is it for police uh, police to have access to that? It's essential. 
I, I mean, we're dealing, people and policemen are dealing with people on the street with huge drug addiction issues. They're going to continue to take drugs no matter the quality or whatever. And I can tell you, Mike, I saved a life at down at Commercial Drive there. I had somebody run up to me and say, hey, there's a guy overdosing. And I ran into the washroom in the McDonald's and the guy was no pulse, no breath. And I gave him the naloxone. Uh, my partner was doing CPR. And the guy sat up. Wow. That's it. it absolutely scared the crap out of me, to be honest. I, I couldn't believe it. it was like some movie, The Living Dead or something, right? And uh, I ended up talking with the guy at the hospital after getting the information. And it turned out he had overdosed 45 times. Oh, man. That's how desperate his drug addiction issue is. So, um, you know, I got him a bed for rehab, phoned down, and was lucky enough to get a bed. And uh, I haven't heard from him since, but he would have been dead, just, you know, plain and simple. So to take away that uh, tool to keep people alive and serve and protect is ridiculous. You know, anytime they get into this bean counting thing, we saw it during the Stanley Cup riots where they tried to cut back and save money and stuff. You're talking about people's lives and safety, right? It, yeah. Being counting should have nothing to do with it. Yeah, let me ask you about that. That's an amazing story you just told there about the administering naloxone to someone who's overdosing. Like, so where do you give them the injection? Like, what, what part of their body do you put, put the needle in? No, the police, we just get the inhaler. Oh, inhale! So it's an it's inhaler. It's in your okay. breast pocket of your uniform. Yeah, it's like a, um, you know, antihistamine kind of thing, and you just wow. put it up their nostril. You give two shots in each nostril, and within forty seconds, this guy sat up and was alive and continued to live. So wow! But they do have to get right to the hospital with the emergency because there could be a relapse and stuff. I was told. So, you know, I know hundreds of stories of policemen that saved people with that stuff so you know it wouldn't hurt for everybody to carry it around frankly right yeah that's that's amazing i know it is an expensive drug i, I think there's some reports that it's like 60 bucks or more per shot i don't think yeah. that's an, ex- an excuse to for the province to stop funding it what kind of um impact i mean police department budgets are stretched right now if they are forced to somehow pay for this out of current police resources what kind of impact could that have Oh, a huge impact. And, I mean, for every budget cut and stuff, you're taking off officers from the street, right? The more officers you have out there, the better for people's safety. It's just the, the sheer presence and, you know, when trouble strikes, the police are there to get the resources you need, right? Yeah. So to take money away from them and, and delve into their budget so we pay for it, Again, you know, the the same thing happened with months ago with the heat wave. You know, they, there's no ambulances on the street. Yeah. And they knew, they forecast that that was going to happen. And uh, hundreds of people died. That's inept, right? But I get a friend that's an EHS guy, and he told me last weekend in North Van and West Vancouver, they had one ambulance available for calls. Wow. That is just ridiculous. 
Hey, Doug, we just got one minute left here. Let me ask you, I remember when police officers were first given these naloxone kits a few years ago, there was some nervousness. I remember talking to some police officers saying, well, we're not sure if we're the one should be using this. They've had it for several years now. Would you say police police officers are happy to have this tool in their arsenal now? They, they, want, they want to keep having this with them every day? We just got 30 seconds here. Oh, no, for sure, Mike. Yeah. I mean, you you got to have that stuff. It's a tool in your tool belt that you yeah, could save yeah. a life with, right? It, it just makes no sense. Originally, we had it for if each of your partner got it and stuff, but we saw people going down as policemen. We're there to protect people. I don't care okay. if someone's going to sue me. I'm going to save the guy's life. Doug, thank you for coming on today. You're more than welcome, Mike. All right, Doug Spencer there, retired VPD. I got a feeling we'll see the province walk this one back. We'll see. We'll continue to follow that story for you. It's time for CKNW's Where We Live series here now. And on the show, we're taking a look at some of Vancouver's most beloved tourist attractions and how they are bouncing back from months of provincial health orders that kept them closed in many cases. And if they're optimistic about a post pandemic future let's talk about the vancouver art gallery now i'm very pleased to welcome lara luna director of marketing and communications at the art gallery lara thanks a lot for coming on today hi great it's uh, it's my pleasure okay it's a very cool job you have i'm a big fan of the art gallery and what is the st- status of the art gallery right now you guys are open for visitors right Oh, we have been open for visitors. Uh, we were one of the lucky ones that were able to reopen quite early last year. Actually, we've been open since June 15th and then just really carefully following all the pu- uh, pub- uh, public health orders uh, that's been set forth since then. Right. That's very cool. So when people come to the art gallery these days, what can they expect? I mean, do you guys have like limiting the numbers inside? Yeah, we have. So basically what we've done is um, we've looked at the, the capacity levels for each of the exhibition floors and as well as the lobby. And so we encourage all uh, everyone coming in, whether you're buying a single ticket um, uh, to go into the gallery or if you're a member to book the tickets in advance. So this way you can guarantee your visit there. And we've also done um, hourly bookings on there. Uh, and, and it's worked out really well so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And so when you buy a ticket now, do you have a, is it a specific time that you go to the gallery on your ticket? Um, it's a specific time. I mean, there's a window there and it just really yeah. depends on how, how busy it is. Uh, we were fortunate enough that uh, traffic did pick up uh, quite a bit for us um, in uh, July, starting in July and then into September. I think especially when the the border was opened up to U.S. visitors, so we saw a lot a lot of people coming through that way. Um, so we always just encourage people to book it in advance. I mean, you can always show up as well, but then if that specific time is already booked up, then you have to wait until like the next hour to be able to access the gallery. Right. Speaking to Lara Luna from the Vancouver Art Gallery, what about uh, group visits? Are those still on? Like, are school groups allowed to come in? Or um, we've had the we've had the odd group uh, come in, and then I yeah. think especially now that. Um, that you know, a, a lot of the that restriction concerning um, sort of like group tours and things like that have loosened up a little. So we just kind of take it case by case and and really making sure that whoever's coming in, they're either part of a bubble or people are distanced um, well. So so we've we've had people come in that way in a group setting. Yeah, the art galleries is a treasured institution in this city. It's the largest public art museum in Western Canada. 
And when people visit the gallery, if they haven't been there for a while, what can they expect to see? Like, what are some of the highlights, would you say? Well, you know, what makes us really unique from a lot of the other art museums across Canada and even in the U.S. is the fact that we always have rotating exhibitions. So a lot of the times when you come in, like it's uh, you probably will will most likely not see sort of like the same art pieces twice. So, for example, right now we've got um, an exhibition that really highlights uh emerging and established artists in Vancouver called Vancouver Special Disorientations and Echo. So we're, we're especially proud to be presenting all the local artists um, that way and giving them that platform in the museum. And then we have a unique exhibition as well with Edith Heath and Emily Carr from the Earth. Um, there's also Jan Wade Soul Power. Jan Wade, it, this is actually the first full exhibition um, by a black woman artist. Um, so she's got like the, a, a whole section uh, totally um, entirely to her work. And she's, uh, she's quite amazing. And we have one that's going to be opening up in a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, we're truly excited about that. And that's uh, Yoko Ono Growing Freedom. Um, there's wow. actually two exhibitions under that main umbrella, which is the instructions of Yoko Ono and the art of John and Yoko. So that one opens uh, on October 9th. Okay, that sounds very cool. I'm sure that'll be a popular one for sure. What about mm-hmm. the, the future of the Vancouver Art Gallery? This has been such a difficult time for all of us. We're hoping that at some point we're going to get on the other side of this pandemic. What does what does the future hold for for the gallery? Because I know this, you guys have been growing over the over the past few years before this pandemic hit, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, we have. I mean, everybody knows that uh, we're still working towards building the, 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 the new Vancouver Art Gallery. And right. uh, that's, that's still ongoing. All the efforts behind that is still ongoing. But I think what's been really unique to us this past sort of like year and a half ever since the pandemic uh, began is the, the fact that we've been able to evolve into so many things. So, for example, even the offerings that we've been able to um, uh present online so at the start of the pandemic we were able to develop two two digital programs uh one is art connects and that's really evolved to so many different things so it's not your kind of -of run-of-the-mill you know lecture talks or series or anything like that we've been really able to open it open it up to so many different artists to so many different art forms. I mean, we even had a comedian and dancers, poetry reading, like you name it. Like that's been a really great platform to to really showcase um, all these people's talents um, in Vancouver and beyond. And then we were also because obviously we weren't able to to do any of our in person public programs like our family programs and and our children's programming. So we were able to develop um, art at home as well. So sort of like we took that experience and and basically just uh, pivoted online um, with a lot of those different things that that we would have done in person. Um, so I think in terms of the future, I think it's um it really speaks to the resiliency of the gallery um, yeah. that we've just been able to evolve uh, throughout the years. And and I think um, we've, we've also done a lot of work. We've, we've done a lot of sort of like internal look at how we do our processes and how the, the, the institution 
solution has to evolve, especially, you know, with all the, the social changes that's going on. So we have been quietly working on so many um, different um, equity programs and things like that as well. And we're turning 90 in a couple of wow. weeks as well. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh, that's, a, that's a big milestone. Okay. Happy birthday to the Vancouver Art Gallery. <laughs> yeah. Lara, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much.